Hello, and welcome to Biota. I'm your host, Phil Gibson. This is part two of my interview with Dr. Leland Bement, the archaeologist who studied the Cooper Bison kill site and discovered the Cooper Bison skull. If you haven't listened to the first part of the interview, you might want to go back and listen to it because we're going to pick up with Dr. Bement telling us how his research team determined where the bison were before they were hunted at the Cooper site and how the Folsom culture hunters knew to be there when the bison arrived. Let's rejoin Dr. Bement as he continues telling us about the information contained in bison teeth. The thing about bison teeth is that they also are growing at a particular rate when they develop in the mandible so that, you know, they grow by first putting down a layer uh, that doesn't have enamel on it. And then when the enamel starts to develop on that tooth, it starts at the top of the tooth for the mandible and is laid down in layers down until it hits the roots. And so by studying our age structure of these animals, we can figure out how long each layer of enamel takes to be laid down and at what age that animal is, is going through that enamel melogenesis process. And by doing that, the other part about enamel is that is pulled out of the bison's metabolism, out of what they eat to get the calcium, to get the carbonate, to get the various constituents of enamel laid to, to be laid down on there. And as bison graze apart across an area, they are picking up the minerals that are required to make enamel out of the grasses and out of the water, but they also pick up trace elements of other minerals that are out there and elements that are out on the landscape. So if you think at, at a landscape of Oklahoma, just a general mapping of element distributions across Oklahoma, you would immediately think of, well, they have lots of lead and tin up in the northeast corner of the state because we know that people have problems with lead poisoning up there, and it's on the surface, it's in the soil. We know that as you move westward, you get to the Great Salt Plains, you get an increase in selenium because we all go out to the Great Salt Plains to dig up selenium crystals so that's in the water it's in the sediments so you have selenium there as you move further to the west you get other elements fluoride and and more of a calcium carbonate uh, mixture out there and that, and so you can see that you have these different elements out across there that can be incorporated into making the enamel for the teeth. So if an animal is, is feeding on grasses and drinking water as it's moving across Oklahoma, it will be ingesting these elements 
and the trace amount of those elements will show up in the teeth. And if we analyze the bands of enamel for these elements, we can see which elements are in which bands, and we can use that to map the geological presence of where that animal was when that enamel was being formed. I know that's a long way to get there, but what it shows us is that we can, um, we know that every five millimeter increment of bison tooth enamel represents two months of time to develop. And so if we look at the teeth that are developing when the animal is uh, first born, and there it's relying a lot on the mother's metabolism to get those minerals in there because those teeth are forming when that animal is, is not eating any grass. It's still on mother's milk. But we get a certain elements come in with that. We can show that these animals calving season and location was occurring in the Rocky Mountains. It was in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, somewhere uh, probably west of Raton. And so that would place them there uh, during late April into May, maybe up till the 1st of June. Then these animals start moving eastward. So as the late spring into summer progresses, these animals start moving across the plains. And they're not moving fast. They're kind of following the green up of the grasses as they're moving across. And so they're following that green wave. And so they're moving fairly slowly. As they move eastward, then... There will be in the Oklahoma panhandle by midsummer. By late summer, they're moving into northwestern Oklahoma. By middle of fall, they're moving again further east, probably onto um, the Salt Plains area. And then by late fall, early winter, they're up by Tulsa in that area somewhere. And wintertime, they are spending uh, probably three to four months in northeastern Oklahoma and adjacent areas of Arkansas and Missouri. And then from there, they hightail it all the way back to the foothills of the, of the, the Rocky Mountains by the next spring calving season. So the animals that are moving through northwest Oklahoma are there, just the big pulse of this migration are there at late summer, and that's exactly the season of when these large-scale kills are taking place. So it matches the, the developmental stage of the bison coming across, and it matches then the season of when these kills are taking place. And we can then start to piece together people movement coming into this area at a particular time of the year 
because they are targeting when these animals, when the large herds are going to be in the same area. So they're going when it's predictable that they're going to find large amounts of animals. And why are they selecting this area? Is because that is also where they have these arroyos that are conducive to this hunting technique of using these traps. And you can't find arroyos just anywhere. I mean, it's, it, it takes a particular stage of landform evolution. If you really want to get into the, the geology, geomorphology of when that happens, that's a whole nother subject. But they all come together to get the animals and the people on this landform at the right time. And it, it also pulls in that the other aspect of our knowledge of Folsom cultures is on the Southern Plains and this part of the Plains, these large kills only take place at the end of summer. You could say, well, why aren't they following these herds and making big kills all the time? Well, they just aren't. There, there's no archeological evidence of that happening. Otherwise you would see large arroyo kills in these other areas. Why, you know, why don't we have a large arroyo kills up by Tulsa? None have ever been found. Why don't we have them out in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains? Well, none have been found out there. But we do see them as soon as the bison are moving out onto the plains, we do see these kills start to occur. And so it's within that summertime, early fall, that all these large groups take place. This brings us to an important point that I asked Dr. Bement to explain further. How does this Arroyo kill site differ from what they have observed at other places where Folsom people lived at other times of the year? During the rest of the year, our Folsom sites that we know about are small kills. They represent one to maybe up to five animals, and these are being killed in ambush style at the edge of a, of a watering hole. So it's a different type of kill. It's still on bison, but it's the size of kill that one of these family groups can make if, if they come across a small group of animals getting a drink or even a large group of animals getting a drink. If you just have one or two hunters, they're going to only kill one or two animals. And so it's, you know, that's, that's all you can do in an open hunting situation. You could not make a large arroyo kill because you don't have the right number of people. From our small camps, you would expect that a family group would be able to eat off of one or two bison for up to a month's time. If conditions were right and also they had the technology of drying the meat smoking it so making jerky basically out of it um, to be able to preserve it so the small group would be able to eat on it for that long length of time now in our large kills we envision a whole lot of other cultural or social activities going on when any time in our modern, what we understand of modern groups, that you have 
a large number of people come together um, as a rendezvous, if you will. Food is necessary to keep everybody there. I mean, they need to be able to eat. They need to have those resources. But that is not the main intent as to why they are there. They are coming together for social reasons. And so you see a, a lot of uh, feasting activities going on. Uh, you would see um, ceremonies probably to you know, honor the birth of new people in their group and also to recognize people that have passed away since the last time the groups were together, uh, healing ceremonies. There could be any number of different ceremonies that go on. If you think about today's powwow uh, that Native Oklahomans still have, uh, these in include a lot of dancing, feasting, other private ceremonies. I mean, there's just all this social activity that goes along with them, but you do have to feed them. For what we see in, with these bison kills is we can envision a lot of feasting going on because of all these groups coming together and you have this surplus of meat. I mean, you've just killed 30 to 60 animals and this, these large groups are only there together probably for a couple of weeks. They probably aren't spending more time than that at this place. And some of the evidence that we have for that is the style of butchering that happens at these large kill sites. You can imagine at a small kill, you, you kill one animal that the family group, they totally butcher that one animal. I mean, they are cutting the legs off of it. They're uh, stripping the meat off of the legs. They are taking as much of that animal as they can get off of it. And what they leave behind for us archaeologists to find is a, disart is a disarticulated skeleton of a pile of bones, basically. At the Cooper site, what we had were the skeletons of completely articulated animals. And in other words, we have a complete skeleton from the head all the way down to the tip of the tail and the legs. All of the bones are still there and they're still articulated. The evidence that we have that they're being butchered is the cut marks that are on the bones that show that they strip the meat off of them. But they are not cutting the legs off and moving the legs somewhere else to strip the meat or handing it to someone. They are not doing what you would expect if you wanted to recover every bit of meat and, and sinew and everything else, you know, along with the hide that you can get off of these animals. They are not doing that. They are very, very concentrated on a very few select cuts of meat that are on the hump and the back strap of the animal. So what we end up with at Cooper is this very weird situation of completely articulated animals 
of animals that are jammed into the confined spaces of this arroyo. And what it shows then is you have animals laying on top of each other or next to each other that have been butchered. But when the animals were killed, there wasn't room for these animals to fall on their side when they were killed. All they did was go down on their haunches. So they just sink down onto their stomachs. And then there'll be one lined up next to it and next to it and next to it. And then, so you are butchering these animals by where you can get to the meat, what resources you can get by an animal that's on its haunches jammed up with the next animal. And that's where all of our cut marks are going down the dorsal spines of the thoracic vertebra. Those are the long uh, spines that support the hump of the animal and has some of the highest fat and really tender meat on those. That is where they're concentrating their efforts. That's where the cut marks come down to that and then come off. We see also cut marks on the head of the ribs, but the ribs are not broken off or removed. And then this follows all the way down the vertebral column to get all of the good backstrap meat off of them. And so we have, that is where all of the butchering is, is taking place, all of that evidence. And then after these animals are butchered up and the people leave, then eventually uh, these skeletons, after the maggots clean off everything else and whatever, whatever scavengers can get in there and work it amongst all of the maggots, then these skeletons just fall over in domino fashion, laying on top of each other in a particular sequence. But our butchering style, and this was, was one of our first clues as to how efficient this butchering was, is they're able to get up to 50% of the, of the meat off of each individual animal in a very, very quick way by this type of butchering. And they are taking that meat somewhere else. There is no camp annexed to any of these kills. Not up on the gully edges, not in the gully. There is no evidence that they set up any type of camp there. They are making the kill, coming in and doing their butcher, doing their butchering and taking that meat somewhere else. So this provides evidence that there was some camp established somewhere else ahead of time, which had to be. But this is more evidence that all they want is this meat. They're taking it back to camp. And this provides a surplus for everybody to feast on for probably at least two weeks that these guys are together. That's the end of part two of my interview with Dr. Bement. In the final episode of this series, Dr. Bement will tell us about discovering the Cooper Bison Skull and the curious series of events that followed. I'm Phil Gibson, and this is Ben Biota. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Leland Bement from the Oklahoma Archaeological Survey. From everyone at Biota, thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. 
All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.